You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Aiden McCullen, who is the author of this book right here, Undisruptable, a mindset of permanent reinvention for individuals, organizations, and life. But in addition to authoring this book, Aiden is, he lectures at Trinity College. He's also the host of the Innovation Show and a principal at Edge Behavior. Aiden, welcome. I have to say that when I saw your innovation show, I think we had been working on a, a job together and, and I saw this and I said, wow, that's amazing. I, I think this is something I could do maybe. So you're, first of all, I have to mention that you're my inspiration for creating Unsiloed. You know, what's interesting about your work is that I've interviewed a lot of people who talk about business transformation, business model transformation, and I've been teaching business strategy for decades. And I guess it's only recently that I realized that there's these huge connections between what we might think of as uh, business strategy and kind of personal strategy or kind of individual strategy. And there's a lot of lessons uh, that can go back and forth between kind of business reinvention, self-reinvention, the learning organization, and the learning individual. And you make this very explicit right at the beginning of the book where you talk about how a business model change really requires a, a mindset change, right? For all the people that are inside of that organization. And I think in your case, you kind of went through it the other way. Like you started with kind of the individual mindset change when you're thinking about your career and how it was going to develop. And then only later started thinking about how that this applied to kind of business models. So do you think that these, the thinking about individuals and thinking about organizations, are there these common themes and the, these common insights that we can move back and forth between these two different domains? Yeah, I, like I've been so lucky, Greg, in that. And firstly, thanks for asking me on the show. It's great to be with you finally. And it's great to see your show doing so well. You've got some amazing guests and more power to you, sir. So it's great to see. And back to your point, the way it evolved for me was really personal growth. So I, had, I was lucky enough to have a career as a professional sports player for a decade. And when I, you know, this idea of Steve Jobs quote that you can't connect the dots looking forward, but you can connect them looking backwards. And they definitely made sense to me when I looked backwards, because the core red thread between everything I do is transformation. And the first one was the transformation from pretty average athlete. Maybe I didn't transform that much. I just managed to, to do okay as a pretty average athlete, but I was certainly as a child, not a very good athlete, often last picked in the playground. I managed to go on and play for my country and play for the two best clubs in, in rugby in Europe. And I noticed then you retire, you go through the experience of that retiring. You see in NFL, for example, in America, 80% of players who retire on an average salary of about $3 million go broke within a few years because they cling to the identity they used to have. And as I progressed through the different identities, that I experienced so far in my life. One was uh, I went into digital media after retiring from rugby. And actually, I thought I'd get a job quite easy, but it was 2008. So I had to go in as an unpaid intern for quite a while to learn the trade. And it was brilliant because I was paid so little and I was responsible for so much. Nobody really knew what it was. I was like the one eyed man in the land of the blind, a few Google searches ahead of everyone else, but I had a really loose leash to learn. And then from there, I went on to become head of innovation about eight years later in the national broadcaster. 
That's where when I started the show, actually. But out of that work, when I went there, it was quite a archaic legacy organization, crystallized mindset. I saw the resistance to change and I was like, wow, I'd never encountered that before because I'd come from sport and then into this other role where I had a really loose leash, long enough leash to succeed. And that resistance really struck me. And then I realized I didn't have the tools to be able to be ahead of innovation, which is essentially ahead of transformation. So I went and worked in a consultancy across the world, set up an office over in New York, your side of the world, had a brilliant experience. And through that, I learned that you cannot change business models until you change mental models. It didn't matter how good the strategies we came up with for these brilliant companies were, they'd usually get put away in somebody's desk, never to see the light of day or else they were rejected by the people. So it was like this really bad skin graft that was rejected by the corporate body. And that's why I was able to look back on all those different experiences and go, you can't change an organization, what it does until you change how people think. And an organization is just a mass of individuals. So you need to change how each individual is recognized, rewarded, compensated, even intrinsically motivated. All those things come to a fore. And that's where that came from was actually looking back through a lot of obstacles and setbacks and failures, but learning from them. Yeah. And so we talk a lot about this trade-off between explore and, and exploit. And you'd think that the successful people would be the ones that are most open to new information or new ways of thinking, right? In fact, that's why you think they're successful in the first place, right? You think they must have been open to learning. That's how they learned how to be successful. But I think one of the points that you're making is that it's often the most successful people that are the most resistant to learning. They've stumbled on something that seems to be working and it's precisely because they're successful. It's precisely because they're doing pretty well that they set up these barriers to learning. Why is that? I imagine that must have been an optimal strategy at some point, right? So in a world that doesn't change very quickly, like that sort of is, that's the way you should be. You, you find a solution, you find a, something that works and just double down on it. So was that like a sensible way to be? Is that sometimes a sensible way to be? Or like under what circumstances should we be in this mindset of perpetual learning? Because if we're learning all the time, then we're not really doing anything. We're just you know, like the <laughs> philosopher that walks around and falls into the pit. Yeah. I, I love the, one of the mental models I love that I didn't include in the book is this Greek God called Janus and Janus is the root of the word January and is the, the God of new beginnings and perpetual beginnings and uh, transitions. And you see this sometimes above doorways or gates in ancient buildings or old buildings. And it's one face facing forward and one facing back. And I love that as a concept for explore and exploit. And actually what the CEO of today, the leader of today, each one of us in our own roles need to be doing. We need to be looking forward while maintaining and exploiting the decisions we made in the past. And what's changed to your point is the infrastructure, the landscape, the tectonic plates of disruption have reshuffled the landscape. And it's getting faster and faster because it's driven by technology. A lot of the topics you cover on your show, exponential change, artificial intelligence, technology is getting faster than ever before. And that's a constant, that getting better, that getting faster, that sustaining innovation in Clayton Christensen speak. And the optimal strategy is getting the new product when there's no other competing product there, but there's always going to be a competing product. And you talk about some of the great innovators in the world, for example, Henry Ford 
comes up with this great idea. He sees a meat factory. He goes, okay, that's an assembly line. What if I can use that assembly line of mass market or mass production and apply it to automobiles? But Henry Ford worked so hard on figuring out the optimal solution, so much so that even when he was trying to find pieces to fit along the assembly line, he was like, we're better off doing it ourselves. So they created this kind of customized solution for them. So they're able to mass produce the automobile. But what is not known so much about Henry Ford is that some of his team, the R&D team in the organization who had the touch points with the customer and could see the changing customer needs and the changing environment now that the car had become accepted en masse, came to him with a prototype for a new car. So this is the great innovator who worked so hard to bring us the automobile. How did he react? Says nothing, stands up, goes over to his cabinet pulls out a hammer and smashes the prototype to pieces because I found out a way and here you are showing me a different way. No way. Let's double down to your point. And this is where we get stuck in sustaining what we've done. And it's so counterintuitive to look at something that's infantile. And we forget the beginner's mindset. We forget how difficult it was to be the beginner, to be the starting guy, to be the startup, to be the, for when you start off as a professor, that beginner's mind, when you're actually teaching a teaching assistant, you forget what it was like for them to be learning. And, and it's just a natural human phenomenon. That happens in organizations as well. We forget that every organization started as a startup. Every organization had multiple failures as they failed their way to success. And it's only when we have something that we have, we can defend that we start defending. When our mindset goes to a defensive mindset, the neurochemicals, the chemistry of our brain changes and we, we start to deflect new information. We start to get rewarded for information that confirms what we already know, confirmation bias. We get dopamine kick, the equivalent of cocaine for the brain to go, well done, Aiden, you find out something you already know, you're a hero. And that deflects all the new information. And there's this whole cocktail of different rewards and chemicals going on in the brain and then the way society rewards me for well done and achieving what you've achieved now you have this persona and the persona is this word that comes from the greek it means masks that actors used to wear and we wear those personas in society as well as organizations kind of going this is what i'm known for and then we become very protective of that persona and in doing so because things are moving so quickly we are ripe for disruption. Yeah, you've got some wonderful imagery and great quotes. I think on a per page basis, you've got a pretty high hit rate, but I did some training as a chef. And, and one of the things that cardinal sins of chef was you don't want to be a pan shaker. The pan shaker is the person who you got something that's searing on the pan and you keep moving the pan. And so you never actually develop a crust. You never actually get that set that you want. And I feel like I was in Montessori school when I was young. And so I got into the habit of the minute I learned something, I'd turn around and start teaching it. And then I'd move on, learn something else and go on teaching it. And I feel like I've been doing that my whole life. I've never become an expert in anything and I've never, and as a result, I've never really published anything. And so the folks who are actually publishing and moving the ball forward, those are the ones that are to some degree just drilling into something, really committing themselves. And so I think in your book, you don't push this idea of learning. You say, it's, okay, you've got to also engage in this building and you've got to actually do stuff. I'd love to, you know, going back to your professional career as a rugby player, if you were spending all of your time in the evenings, right, I don't know, studying for a medical degree or something, wouldn't your coach kind of wonder about your commitment? 
right, to excellence. You know, you talk about these superhuman people like Arnold Schwarzenegger who can work out eight hours a day and build a real estate empire. But for most people, isn't the choice a little bit more difficult? Don't you have to kind of really commit to something if you want to be excellent? How could you simultaneously be a professional rugby player and plant the seeds for your next career, let's say. Those quotes that you, you throw out, okay, build the roof while the sun is shining, but shouldn't you be out like harvesting the crop when the sun is shining or how do you balance that? I'm looking forward to your book, man. There's some great <laughs> imagery there. The pan shaking, love it. The chapter called the pan shaker. Yeah, it's a great point. And one of the things that the kind of biggest resistances I meet often when I'm running workshops, et cetera, is like, oh my God, this sounds so tiring. You're telling me I need to, keep learning, etc. And it does take a certain mindset. Most of us, our experience of education was okay. We probably didn't go to college or didn't go to school for the joy of learning. We went because we had to. And that even that mindset of we had to changes the whole experience versus I really love this subject. And very few of us know what we want to do at that age. I think one of the things I like, and to use your pan shaking is Try different ingredients in the pan, mix things up. Like one of the, the really interesting things is if you think about everybody has a swim lane in life, everybody has a thing they're known for. And McKinsey talked about this thing called the T-shaped worker, where you have this kind of core. If you think of the letter T, this core, the, t, the, the stem is the thing you're really good at. And then there's this ulti, there's other things like, for example, for you, there's the chef background, there's the podcasting. There's writing, all these different things that go across the lateral part of the T. And what I actually think is that it should be more maybe an O shape now, because it, firstly, I like the symbolism of it being round because it, it's less hard edges, but also it's got this kind of ongoing factor, but also the bottom of the T, if you continue the T and you go that the bottom is actually made up of a foundation of human skills, collaboration, communication, those type of things. And I think to your point of not being an expert, I think we're moving away from the expert. The world still needs experts, don't get me wrong. We still all need a core competency. But with the speed of change of information and theories being disproved so quickly and new information being uncovered, we need to be just wary that when we get to the top of the ladder, the wall's getting higher <laughs> or when we get to the top of the ladder that we may sometimes realize we're against the wrong wall. We don't like what we've got to the top of. And that's a shame to be stuck there because you're like, you know, I've nowhere else to go. And I think even putting yourself under a little bit of stress, a little bit of pressure, like for example, you running your podcast now is a great way to get outside your swim lane. You cover a wide range of topics that makes you think differently to your first question to me was you saw how organizational disruption is the same as personal disruption. I see that all the time and because I look around evolutionary biology, neuroscience, technology, artificial intelligence, and you start to spot trends, you start to connect dots, but you have to collect spots, the dots in order to connect them. And a lot of people don't collect before they go try and connect. You can't connect without anything to connect. So. I think that's a really important aspect that this kind of wide knowledge is good, but then you hang your hat on something that you, a theory perhaps, and they're only ever theories. I don't think there's any kind of uh, scientific fact of anything I say. It's more, here's the thing that worked for me. I hope it'll work for you. 
a collection of a lot of sources, hopefully in a very consumable way, I'm offering that to you. Some of you will reject it, some of you won't. For those that you don't and you get some value out of it, great. That's what I propose. And I think that's a really nice way to approach things. It's humble. It's learning in it for me as well. And in actually do, going through the process of, for example, writing, there's so much learning in that and transformation for you personally as well. And I just think that's the world we're in where you don't need to be constantly uh, flipping the pan, but you can mix up your ingredients. In the book, you talk about the importance of discomfort, right? I think you quote David Bowie and some others, and that learning can sometimes be uncomfortable and it forces you to question the things that you've taken for granted, which is contrary to what feels good. And I'm wondering, I'm finding in kind of the educational world and also sometimes in the corporate world where we, on the one hand, we have this trend of constant change, but there seems to also be this kind of concurrent trend where people are increasingly uncomfortable with discomfort, right? And that people are kind of seeking out comfort more and more, and that people are seeking confirmation of their beliefs. And certainly in, even in educational institutions, which are designed for discomfort, there's a promise of comfort. And in fact, schools are, are competing with each other to offer more comfortable environments, ever more comfortable environments for their students. Is, do you see something that's a little strange about that movement towards comfort seeking at exactly the moment where we need even more discomfort? Is it that we have the, the educational institutions, the way they've done discomfort in the past has, is the wrong way and we need to come up with a, a newer way or more inclusive way of, of creating discomfort? Yeah, I think there's a, the cliche, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, but it's very true. I mean, it, it's evolutionary pressure. We all, we need evolutionary pressure. There's a, a tidal wave of obesity going throughout the planet because we're more comfortable than ever before. And oftentimes that is powered by a lack of extrinsic pressure. So if you think about, for example, I optionally go towards cold shower. I do things like intermittent fasting, keto, not to lose weight but to keep my physiological agility, if you call it that. Same with the learning. I just read about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> read books about the Holocaust and, and the Gulag and World War I and the trenches and the potato famine. And I'm like, all right, I don't need to do it. I could just read about it. But you're doing the mental version of it. So what you do with your podcast is the mental version. If you think about what you're doing to your brain, you're giving your brain a workout, you read a book a day, and that's the same as going to the gym every day. It's the mental gym, it's the mind gym. And it's constantly raising the bar just high enough for you to achieve. And by learning, you get a dopamine hit for achieving what you set out to achieve. I say to myself, I'm gonna to go to the gym today. I do it, I feel good about myself. I'm more likely to do it again. We see it with kids. My kids are young and they're start playing Fortnite. A lot of people, a lot of parents don't know this about Fortnite, it's designed around artificial intelligence where it's individualized the game to each player. So it knows here's Greg, Greg's pretty good. He needs to have a couple of hits or wins every 10 minutes or give him a prize. Here's a new weapon, Greg, just happened to stumble across it to keep you engaged, keep you into the game, keep you wanting to feel like you're achieving, you're moving forward. That is a nice way to think about education. So. If you've had kids in your class and kids, adults, <laughs> just reflection of my age as well, the students 
who we experience in college, that the ones that are the ones looking out the window are not necessarily bored. They just may have read that content already, or they're not stimulated, or somewhere along the line, they've picked up this idea that they're not very good and that they won't achieve at this. So they have this Gollum effect, the opposite of the Pygmalion effect. They think they're no good and they won't do well at this certain subject. But if we could apply this mindset of set the bar just high enough for them to have a bit of a challenge, but help them succeed, but then do like in mindset or do like in Fortnite, where it's individualized to each one of them, that's an ideal scenario. And that's a, that's a scenario of almost cobots where we're collaborating with the robots, which is the technology to supply this kind of um, individualized learning process to people. Imagine a world where the students all have an individualized version of your session or a multitude of versions of Greg's from all over the world teaching somewhere similar, the same ballpark stuff. And then your job is almost like a Sherpa going around the classroom and going, how are you getting on Aiden? How are you getting on Laura? How are you getting on there, Mary? And helping people along the way to, it's almost like artificial intelligence in medicine that's helping people are in healthcare, helping the doctors become more human. And I love that concept, but it does need struggle. It needs struggle because all learning, and this is probably showing my betraying my background in sport is you don't get a gain unless you get pain. And what that is, I need the weights to be heavy enough to cause discomfort, to break down the muscle. And then I need to feed it and nurture it in order for it to grow again. The same with any kind of learning or any kind of organization. So we talked about disruption in organizations. If there's no extrinsic pressure for me to change, I won't because ultimately the brain is a, an energy saving machine, always looking for shortcuts and it will create atrophies wherever it can, including in an organization. There's no competitor. Ah, we don't have anything to work, worry about. And then somebody starts to compete in a place that you never even thought of. And then you have this bunch of non-consumers and then all of a sudden their product is good enough to take your market share. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, what happened? We were top of the mountain. Now we're top of a molehill. Yeah. And you taught, there's a quote in a book where I think 70% of the people who have had bypass surgery don't change their diets or lifestyles, even though they've just gone through this horrible, you know, experience. It's like a reminder. It's like, yeah, you really are. This is different. This is where the signal's very clear, right? There's a warning. You see the iceberg. It's, it's not like you're not getting the signal, but people still will ignore the signal. So even after the iPhone came out, Blackberry and Nokia, and you described these in, in the book, they just dismissed it. That's not really an iceberg. We don't really don't want to consider that being an iceberg. That's just too threatening to our vision. Yeah. And one of the worst things about that Nokia story is again, like the Henry Ford one, like these are repeatable patterns. And again, this is what you get the wide birth of, of reading the eclectic reading. You start to spot these patterns. Same thing that I said about Henry Ford happened in Nokia. Some more and D professionals came forth, suggested the idea of this touchscreen phone and a touchscreen tablet. They even had a prototype and including an app store where they could develop this new revenue stream. Management told them to get out and focus and double down on what they were good at. And that is the pattern that happens every time because it's so counterintuitive. The, the competitive set, so this new product, this new service that you introduce or a competitor does, you look at it like the iPhone. It's always clunky in the early days. It doesn't work. Uh, the original iPhone wasn't a great phone. 
just let's take the idea of the iPhone and map it back to Henry Ford again. When Henry Ford introduced the car, the predominant mode of transport was the horse and cart and the railway. And roads were no more than glorified dirt tracks. Cars broke down all the time. They were so smelly, they were known as stink chariots. So along comes Henry Ford with this great idea. Couldn't get any backing, financial backing. The banks wouldn't give him any money, so he went to wealthy individuals. One of those wealthy, wealthy individuals was a guy called Horace Rackham. Rackham goes to the president of the Michigan State Savings Bank, tells him, I want to invest heavily in Ford Motor Company. And he says to him, the automobile is only a fad. The horse and cart is here to stay. Terrible prediction in retrospect, but in the predominant paradigm, and paradigm is the Greek word that just means pattern, the paradigm, the pattern of thinking, it didn't make any sense. These things broke down. They were seen as a toy for the rich. The same thing as the original iPhone. So Nokia, protective mindset, like I talked about earlier on, when you have that protective mindset, you're like, we need to look after the thing we have created. We need to defend it. Then you start to deflect other information. And then on top of that, you couple in sometimes the hubris of success where I'm, we're killing it. Top brass in the company are getting paid massive compensation. The share price has gone through the roof. Nobody feels any extrinsic pressure back to that human physiology of evolutionary pressure. Then they actually become almost like the Stanford prison experiment. They start becoming these kind of egotistical monsters within the organization. Psychological safety depletes in the organization. Nobody feels it's okay to share bad news. There's no way to share that bad news. People are knowing that they're losing market share, but they're so protective of the share price that they deflect that information away. And then we have what seems like a sudden disruption, but always, almost always, these disruptions take place over about a decade. And the difficulty is trying to spot when it's time to flip. When is the tipping point that I need to change to my new business model? When and how do I do it? How do I incentivize my sales team who already have a way of selling to incentivize them to sell something that is probably marginal, a tenth of the cost of my main product or is competing with it? And these are all the challenges that goes on. And this goes on a personal level as well. When I go, I want to disrupt myself. I want to take up the piano. Yeah, but the piano at the start, you, you mean, Aiden, you're 44. You're 44, man. You're a bit late. It's good to learn a piano when you're young. And then I go, oh yeah, you're probably right. Because it doesn't make sense. And when we look, and, and we will always tend mentally towards the thing that confirms that, yeah, it doesn't make sense because the brain is naturally looking for shortcuts and savings. And that's why I talk about this mindset. You need to hone that mindset. You need to be a little bit of a pan shuffler because you need to keep the breeze at your heels. You need to be the orchestrator of that breeze at your heels because at some stage in all our lives, the rug gets pulled from under our feet. And if the rug gets pulled from under your feet and you have built some capability before you need it, you will already have a half-baked rug <laughs> ready to go, another one underneath the other one. So that, that's the real kind of crux of what the message I want to get across. And particularly for younger generations as well, because the, a lot of pressure from their parents to go, oh yeah, you're working in a great company. Oh yeah, protect that job, stay there. Don't go to that small startup. But actually, if they went to the small startup to begin with, they learn a load of different things that then they can bring back to the big established company. And that might be a va more valuable route in the long run. And then the other thing is so many 
of us, so many of our children or younger generations are going to be, so there's going to be on and off ramps in their employment all the time. They're going to be working in companies, working for several companies at once, back into a new company, maybe to work on a contract basis for three years, back out again on a consulting basis. That's going to be more the norm. At the moment, those people are seen a bit random, but they're actually pioneers in some way. Certainly here in, in Silicon Valley, and I have students come in at, at 28 to the MBA program and they have six jobs under their belt. That's considered normal out, out wow. here. But um, you talk about dismissive view of new things as fads. I actually remember trying to get data science course into the curriculum at my university. And I was told by an administrator that was a fad. This was 10 years ago. And trying to get a crypto class in, I was like, ah, oh, that's a fad. And it's just, we'll see, right? <laughs> but uh, you have to build those. But you know, you talk about buying options buying insurance when the sun is out and so forth. But I want to push back on that because look, when you're married and you're happily married, you're not making arrangements for plan B. Isn't there to some degree, some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy involved or some, you start planning for failure, you're more likely to make failure happen. What, how do you know when it makes sense to just double down on this vision and commit to this vision? You, you talk about the importance of vision and at least while you're kind of within that curve, that vision is important. If your vision is something that can transcend all of these different phases, isn't your vision kind of vague? I mean, was your vision when you were playing rugby to be innovation guru? Like, how do you, what were you, were you thinking beyond? You mentioned that you were lucky because you experienced a lot of injuries and rough times while you're playing, which reminded you of the need to prepare for life after rugby and, and others, maybe they didn't, they weren't so lucky. How narrow or how broad can your kind of lifelong vision be so that it can support these different transitions? So the, just say about the lucky from being injury, people are like, um, this guy's nuts, <laughs> tune him off. So what I meant there was so many of my colleagues were, were very, very brilliant players. And they had careers that weren't so speckled with injury. I got injured quite a lot, probably reflective of the talent that I had. So it wasn't that talent. So I had to work hard because I worked so hard, I often got injured. So there was a little bit of that. But the reason I say I was lucky at the end in particular was because in the last couple of years, I knew my goose was cooked. I was on my way out. So I started to research a lot. And that's when I started actually, I saw the Forbes 2007 magazine cover of magazine Nokia, can anyone catch the cell phone king? That's where I saw that. And I was like, I'm going to go here. These guys seem to be killing it. And in January, the stock just was started to plummet because the iPhone came out. So that was a real kind of sliding door moment for me. But to your point, don't look for a job at a booming company, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's hopefully one of the lenses I introduced in the book is to go, I use this for our audience. I use the very well-known heuristic or mental model of the S-curve. So S-curve typically has three points, a starting point, a growth point, and then a decline point or a plateau phase. It's just like the a kind of stretched letter S. And I think of vision as the top of an S. So it's a magnetic force. And let's map that back to what we talked about earlier, Greg, was you need an extrinsic pressure. And what I'm trying to say there is, in the absence of an extrinsic pressure, create an intrinsic one, which is that magnetic force to drag you up a new S-curve, because when things are comfortable, you will have no reason to. And what that looks like is when, say, for example, in sport, when things were going well, that doesn't mean that I go trying to, um, over, like you say, uh, studying up till 3 a.m. every night or anything like that. 
But I, I might go, okay, I kind of have this figure to an extent. What else can I do to keep my competitive edge? And, and just a little bit. It doesn't, like, back to the gaming. Just a little bit to raise the bar, just a tiny bit, so I don't break myself, but I don't obviously atrophy in some way. And in sport, for me, that was like, I, at one stage I got injured and I went to a running coach who was like, teach me how to run again, as if I never ran before. And the beginner's mindset, um, that helped me actually get faster when I came back from being injured because I had that little gap in order to fill. When I look back, I can make sense of those looking back, but at the time, it was just in my nature. And where you see that happening in an organization or in a, somebody who's a professional, you're doing it now with your podcast. You don't have to do this. This is an amazing way to learn, and I do it as well, the books behind me. It's just it's such a privilege to interview the authors of books and get inside their head. It's like getting a private lesson, a tutor lesson with them, and being able to go, ah, that's just like this other thing, and then create these connections, these connecting of dots, etc., which is such a, a valuable pattern recognition is a, a very valuable skill. And you're practicing that every single time you do an interview as well. Back to an individual. So if you're a professional working in a career and you're nailing it, your bonus is coming in, you've got your mortgage, you're happily married, you've got kids, whatever. And to Greg's point, you're not going out looking for other mistresses just to hedge your bets, just in case. What you're doing is going, okay, I have this pretty mastered. What little bit of discomfort introduced? And that could be, I'm going to take a Coursera course. I, I'm going to take a night course in Berkeley. I'm going to take up the piano because the piano trains my brain to think differently. I'm going to, what I mentioned, the dieting, like I'm doing keto, not because I need to lose weight, but because I want to introduce physical or physiological flexibility. And it's the similar thing for you for reading a book every day. That's mental agility or mental flexibility. And the way I think about it is, my future self, and this is back to your point about how blurry is that vision. The vision I have at the moment is my future self, 100-year-old Aiden, and he's not in bits, by the way. He's, he's in decent shape. He's coming to me and he's going, hey, man, I want to thank you for doing this and this because look at me now. I'm actually, I'm not a croc. I don't have dementia. Life is pretty good. I've got some money in the bank. Things are good. And thank you for doing this and this. That's how I think of that vision. So there's a longer-term one. And then there's like a bite-sized one, which is, okay, what am I going to do in the next quarter? What am I going to do in the next year? It was like the book was the project for that year. But then I didn't, my nature was to go, okay, let's start part two of the book. And then I went, no, I'm going to just take it easy and actually in enjoy doing the show, double down my articles, maybe improve the length and quality of the show, sustaining innovation a little bit, but then I'll introduce a little bit of discomfort again. So I took a course. Um, in organizational development. And this is what I mean. There's always something you can do that won't break you, but will keep a little level of discomfort because learning happens in the discomfort zone. Yeah. So when it comes to, for instance, with the podcast, first of all, I want to hear about like how you decided to do a podcast now that you have this podcast going and how do you decide which authors to, to pursue? And to, I know this form of podcast is becoming really popular and and I think that's a good sign because it does mean that people are trying to find a little bite-sized chunks of education. But I also know that a lot of these podcasts, they get in a rut and a routine and you seek out the comfort zone, both the listeners who are trying to find a podcast that's going to tell them the same thing over and over again. And, and you know, we as, as hosts, it's very easy for me to just seek out authors that kind of tell me stuff I already know. How do you think about 
this as part of your learning journey? And how do you think that their listeners incorporate this as part of their learning journey? How do you decide when to start? What do you seek out people that you're like, man, that person, I really don't like what they have to say, but I want, I want to hear it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Actually, I, I do. If I find myself tending to always go down the confirmation bias route, I'll go, I need to disprove myself and see something that says the opposite here, just to keep myself honest. But the pod, the podcast from the learning route, I'll start where it started. So I mentioned to you at the very start of the show that I went to the national broadcaster. When I went there, I was brought into the role as, as head of innovation and it was the place was so not ready for innovation at all and very legacy organization, old organization, one of the oldest in Ireland. And my boss had asked me, look, we have this new player. We have this new TV player and we want content that doesn't happen on terrestrial TV to happen on it. And I suggested this show and I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't going to be the host or anything. I was like, here's a one pager. I think there's a, a gap in the market. This is six years ago for content that goes a little bit deeper. With and you were targeting mainly the Irish audience then initially. No, actually I, wa I wasn't actually then because we have in Ireland, we're very lucky to have the HQs of Google, LinkedIn in Europe and all these places. So they're all here. And I was like, oh, well, they don't have anything to listen to on the national broadcaster. So if we cast the net a little further and have a show with an author from over in the States or in Australia or Singapore, wherever, then we can actually appeal to them. And also it's just a great learning opportunity because there was the, at the time we had Ted talks at the time, there wasn't much more than that. And now we have great podcasts like your own, where you go deep and you do the research. And it's one of the things that I really appreciate about what you do is there's loads of podcasters who do it for different reasons. We do it. And I know this from you, you do it for the learning as well. So you read the book, you don't have to, you get away with not reading the book. And I think your audience will smell that a mile away and kind of go, ah, he took it easy there today. He definitely didn't do the usual work. They can, the amygdala senses these things that somebody's cheating. In. You can tell from the pits under my eyes, right? I, I read, read. <laughs> yeah. So I know you do the work, man, because I can hear it in even the questions and the dot connection that you make, because the questions aren't read from a script. Like just, and just to let our audience in here, a lot of podcasters, including me, I, I get sent these predefined questions. And I just go, not a chance. I, I just, I recycle that paper straight away. And then I'll read the book and I'll often ask the author questions and I go, geez, I never thought of that myself. But that's the point. The point is actually not make them uncomfortable, but actually make it a, a good experience for the author as well, where you're like, you've put some questions to me to challenge me thinking. So it's not me just rhyming off a story that I say every week. That's useless to both of us, I think. So there's learning in that discomfort and for me as the guest as well. So anyway, this is what happened, Greg. Um, they say to me, oh, that'll never work around here. <laughs> right. And I'm pretty persistent guy, probably helped from the sports career. And I went down to a guy in the radio department who I knew worked in a commercial body before I told him. He goes, oh, that's a great idea. He goes, why don't you host it? And I was going, oh man, I don't know how to host. And he's like, going, well, and at the time I was doing rugby punditry. I was a pundit for rugby, a commentator. And he goes, you do all that rugby crap. It's just different crap. And I was like, I, I can do crap. So that's how it started. And then he gave me a producer, Alan Swan, this guy for a few weeks, he helped me, set me up. And then I left a few weeks later. 
but there was so much resistance to the podcast itself. And I, I want to map that back to something you said earlier on, which is if my employer goes, Aiden's doing a lot of kind of side gig stuff. I don't know where his head is. That is a real danger, particularly if you start to take the stage. You'll see that, I'm sure, in academia, where who does LeBlanc think he is getting up on stage? Who does he think he is doing all these keynotes and getting invited on all these things? That happens. That's a real phenomenon. And it's a real threat to somebody building capability. And that's a real shame. That's wrong. Because how else are they going to do it? They got to have some type of outlet, some type of canvas to practice. And I experienced this, Greg, in a couple of organizations I worked in with the show where people weren't, they were kind of going, Who, why is he doing that show? But the thing was, I was never, ever doing it during working hours. It was always like you'd started this at 6.30 a.m. Your time, which is a huge commitment. That's your time. You could be up in the gym. You could be playing the piano, whatever you're choosing to do this. That's your personal investment. And I don't think an employer has any right to ever disagree or degrade that use of your personal time, particularly if all it does is benefit your job, then they should be actually, you should be a hero, not a villain. So anyway, uh, long story short, back to the show. So when I left, then I started off interviewing authors. And before then I was interviewing people in the, the innovation ecosystem. And my first guest was Seth Godin, snowballed from there, I had great guests. And the big thing just to answer this question is, if you're going to start anything, you got to ask yourself why, because your why needs to be bigger than your try, otherwise your excuses will be. And my why for the podcast is learning. My red thread for writing, I write a weekly article as well, is learning. I use the article to consolidate how I think. I use the book also as this kind of consolidation of my thoughts. The show every week is an input and then my writing is an output. That's why I call it the innovation show.io because it's input output. The inputs, the learning the, and then the outputs, the messy kind of output of what the conversation was or the writing, which is like back to your experience as a chef, the mixing bowl is your mind. All the thoughts are marinating and then you bake whatever your beautiful thought is or not beautiful as the case may be. So I can see your book writing itself here, man. Well, a lot of companies will do this explicitly, right? So they'll just say, listen, we actually want you to spend 20% of your time doing something that's a little bit different, right? So not just does the, not, it's not just the organization that's going to have their kind of R and D department that's focused on kind of new stuff, but we want you as an individual employee to intentionally and consciously spend this time doing something different. Now, what I've seen at Google and other companies is that that starts to get chipped away at because the kind of KPIs kick in and people start thinking, well, hey, wait a second, what are you really doing? And the organization has to really work on in enforcing that and saying, hey, wait, that 20%, that kind of looks just like more work. Do you think companies are, are they able to do this? Have you seen good examples of, of companies that really are explicit about it and are able to maintain their focus on promoting this kind of, I see a lot of the people who work at companies like that, they you know, they wind up uh, leaving the company because the stuff that they're doing on the side, the company doesn't really know what to do with it. They don't really know. They say, okay, that's, you spent your 20% doing this, but we're not really interested in what you've done, what you've managed to. I think in the early days, Google would have Gmail and all these other things that came out of these 20% experiments. But once you really get the ball moving, then these things become a bit of a distraction, right? How do you keep that focus on lack of focus? Yeah, I lo love it, man. I think that the overly focused is a challenge. And I'll give you an example. I worked with a client in Amsterdam and 
the client, this was a finance team, and they figured out a way to save themselves and the company a day a week. And this was a big organization, so it was a huge saving. And what was their reward? More work. <laughs> so it's like, here, instead of you guys figured out this formula, let me give you some more challenges for you to figure out. So it was like, give them more work. So fill this cognitive space that they created with more more hustle. And this isn't helped a lot by the whole startup culture. Of, yeah, get up at 3 a.m., go to bed at 1 a.m. and just keep going, climb to the top of the ladder and die getting there. So that's not helped by that. But I want to map it back because you and I both do this is thinking metaphors, I think. And one of the great ones, I was writing this actually, it's my article, is Andrew Huberman, who's a great podcast on human uh, neurology and neuroscience and physiology, etc. He, he's been great, actually. He's recommended a few people come to the innovation show and have got great spikes of traffic because of him. But he, I love his, some of the studies. So he, he did studies on sight. And what he found was, if you think about most of us, when you're going from back-to-back -back meetings, you say pre-COVID, you're in the university, you're in a meeting or you're lecturing, you're focused on people, you're focused on, or the students are focused on the screen. Then what do they do when they leave? They go on their phone, they're focused on that small screen again. And what he was saying was that the human body is designed to be able to not always be narrowly focused, but actually the sight, so it has to go wide again. And if you think about these sites, if you look at a beautiful landscape and you can almost see yourself in that landscape, that's what you need to do to give your brain a chance to get into rest and digest rather than just be in fight or flight. Because fight or flight's like that narrowly focused view is I'm aiming, there's a bison over there, I'm going to kill it and I'm hunting it. And that triggers almost this kind of fight or flight response. So we need to get out of that. And I, I share that to go, think of that for a second and then think about what we do in organizations. And if we're always focused on execution, back to the explore, exploit, we're always in exploitation. We can't even see an opportunity for exploration. We start to miss signals in our environment of change. We start to miss customer desires changing. We miss threats in our environment, but also opportunities because we need this wide perspective. And that's why what you're doing with the eclectic reading is a wide berth. It's not in your swim lane. You're in the whole pool. <laughs> and that's really valuable. But very few people take the time to go, I want to see what else is in the pool, in the ocean here. I want to see what's out there. And, and it's because, as you say, we get rewarded for excelling in our swim lane. And organizations let, need to let people explore beyond their swim lane and not punish them. Because they punish them not always in letting them go from an organization or giving them a slap on the wrist. They punish them in holding them back from promotions or excluding them from strategy meetings. There's other ways you can ostracize somebody. And that often happens, that type of character in an organization where they're subtly bullied and they feel uncomfortable. They're made feel uncomfortable. Maybe, you know what happens all the time? They run a personality profile and they go, oh, you're a yellow or a pink, right? And you're a pink, McCullen. You know, most of the team over here, we're kind of reds and you don't fit in. Have you ever thought of maybe something, maybe we'll give you some new lessons over here. You're very entrepreneurial and they're trying to almost usher you to make the decision. And again, the amygdala goes, screw you. You're trying to get rid of me. And then I become defensive. Then I feel the breeze in my back, get arrows in my back. The snipers are out to get me. And 
I eventually leave. And that, that is an unfortunate reality for so many change makers in organizations. And it's one of the reasons they leave. You mentioned about that. I come up with the next Gmail, but oftentimes it's like, unless my leader, unless my management team are truly good leaders, they're going to find a way to get rid of me because they'll see me as a threat. What if I leapfrog them? And there's a great saying, a guy, a very early guy I had on the show, a guy called uh, Jeffrey J. Fox, brilliant books, by the way, really short books. He's the guy who brought us the idea of the rainmaker in sales. And he said in one of his books, sevens higher fives. So seven out of tens, higher fives out of tens, but nines higher tens. Yeah. Because I, I ever heard A's higher A's and B's higher C's. That's exactly, <laughs> man. Exactly. And it's so true. And that's, I think that's one of the challenges with that job mobility or that job flexibility where I can put some of my time into some side hustle or some side gig or even a hobby. Yeah. We have a motto at our, my school. It's question the status quo is our motto. Not everybody's on board. I heard one senior administrator told me that's just code words for being a jerk. It's uh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't really want anybody questioning his status quo at all. But, but if you listen to most athletes that go on the kind of inspirational speaking circuit, right? They just walk through their triumphs. They talk about, wow, like at the world cup or at the super bowl, right? This is what we had to do and so forth. And, you know, maybe they'll talk a bit about their struggles and how they managed to overcome them. But it's rare that somebody who's a former athlete is talking about how they moved on or moved past it. And I was wondering if you could get to this my favorite metaphor in book, and I remember when I first heard you talk about it, must have been a couple of years ago, is this idea of the, the coconut trap or the monkey trap. And in order to move forward, you have to really let go. And it, it's a hard thing to do. And I think it's more than just about kind of risk aversion. I think oftentimes people talk about people are risk averse. They don't want to venture out into the wild. They don't want to take a gamble. They want to go with the easy thing or the sure thing. But I think your point is that it's, it runs much, much deeper than just kind of risk aversion. It's really, there's something else going on here, which makes it difficult for us to give up things, to put things behind us, right. In our own personal lives. When you're in your role as teacher, and I know you do teaching at, at Trinity College, how do you teach people to let go and put things behind them? Do they have to have a narrative? Do they have to have a story? Do they have to be able to say, okay, I'm going to put, I was great. That was wonderful. I'm going to put a ribbon and a bow on it and push it into the past. Or do you have to convince yourself that there was some kind of lessons that you learned that you can take with you? How do you, when you're constructing your, your narrative, when you're looking at those dots backwards, what do you have to be able to say in order to put that stuff behind you? Yeah, so I'm going to put, put it all together in a slightly different structure. The first thing about the athletes, like the original book I went to was aimed really at wannabe athletes, people who wanted to be athletes or wanted to achieve in sport in some endeavor. And the kind of overriding idea I had was this bias called survivorship bias, which you'll know of, but just for audiences like, so for example, in World War, in the World Wars, they looked at planes that had survived and they're like, what can we do that these planes can show us how to armor the other planes instead of actually looking at the planes that were beat down and actually got shot down? That's where the goal was. Where were they shot? And I always had that concept of myself because I had seen there's so many books of great players, but oftentimes great players don't know why they were great. So you could be like, Tom Brady's not a great example because he's quite a humble guy who's actually a good learner. But you have an amazing athlete who, who you go, okay, how do you put the ball in the top corner of the net? 
Ronaldo. And he goes, like this. And you're like, but how? And he's telling me how, man, break it down. And he can't because he's like, I just yeah. practiced all my life since I was a kid. No, no, I find that I've, I play polo and I had um, I'd go to Argentina and these Argentine guys would be like, no, just do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and the best teachers are often not the best players. And the coaches. Yeah. You see the coaches, you see these, these, I don't think there's like a real, a single star from the NFL that's actually a head coach in the NFL. They're all kind of these third rate players that never really made it. Now, Bill Belichick never even sniffed the NFL. He went to some small uh, liberal arts college and played football there. Yeah. And that's the trend. I mean, there's very little you can learn from their stories because it's usually some circumstance. Maybe they did have some struggles, whatever, but they made it. But I want to go, it's kind of a bit more useful if you can kind of construct a way to go, these are typical things that will happen on your way there. And then actually I changed the, the whole book to kind of go, well, this is because actually my sphere of knowledge went wider. Like we've been talking about, I was in a much many, many more swim lanes. And because of that, I was able to go, actually, this is the same for business and it's the same for life and it's the same for any professional out there, these are all similar trends. And as you said, one of the most difficult things at the end is when you've had some success, no matter how moderate, you become defensive of that. And I mentioned that word persona from the Greek word persona, which basically means uh, masks that actors used to wear back on the stages when they played multiple characters. And we all wear those masks. We all have those personas and we develop them slowly over time. And one of the beautiful parts of the book is actually not my writing. It's Stihok, who's the founder of Visa. He wrote the forward for the book. And he writes this beautiful forward for my book, which he talks about is our minds are like these rooms and we furnish them over time and we come to love them. And we're like, oh, these are such beautiful rooms. And yeah, I remember that sofa. I remember having, I fought so hard to buy that sofa for my, and then the picture over there. I remember that memory. What a beautiful memory. The vase over there. Yeah, I remember that antique store I visited. So you, your mind creates this kind of architecture and it becomes fixed for you. And then almost like I often think about, you, you remember the, the guard on Buckingham Palace with the big furry hat? Each of us are like them. So get away from my palace that I've created. This is mine. We become protective of the persona, believing that everybody else is looking at us. And this is another bias called the spotlight effect that you think everybody in society is looking at you. They're not really, if they are, they should have better things to do. So we start to protect that. And then I thought about that kind of happens to rugby players because they've been in the spotlight. A lot of the players and all sports players who play at a high level, you're kind of in the spotlight. They, they write about you in the paper, good or bad every week, you're kind of a somebody and then all of a sudden you're a nobody and only a very small percentage It's like startups. You work a lot with in the, in Silicon Valley, only a very small percentage of the startups make it through, but everybody celebrates them while we should actually be celebrating the ones that didn't make it and why. So bringing it back to the coconut trap, I saw the same pattern in retirees. So many people die within a couple of years of retiring or else they're, it's almost like their runway of life deteriorate so quickly after they retire because they had over identified with their careers that became their purpose. And because that became their purpose, they were purposeless when they left, or they've worked so hard all their life that they've ignored their family and their wife or their partner. They turn around and they go, who are you again? I know nothing about you. I've been so busy in that career, which really I hope has given some value to the world, 
but not at the expense of me. That's the kind of context in which I'll tell the story of the coconut trap. And it, it was also for athletes. So here's what the story is to Greg's point. So in a time where it was okay and it was legal for natives to trap monkeys, they used an ingenious technique to do so. They'd take a coconut and they'd hollow a hole just wide enough for a monkey's hand to squeeze through. And they'd fill that coconut full of fruit. And then they'd hang it on a tree that monkeys would frequent. And then they'd hide in the bushes. They'd tie that coconut to this tree. In time, the monkeys would come along smelling the fruit, look around, nobody around, smells good to me, stick their hand in to grab the fruit, squeeze it inside that coconut and create a fist. And when they created the fist, of course, they couldn't get their hand back out from that small little slit, that small little hole in the coconut. Here's the point. Even when they saw their potential captors coming to take them, which could have meant death, it could have meant imprisonment, and it certainly didn't mean freedom, they'd cling to that fruit, they'd grasp onto that fruit. And instead of letting go and swinging from vine to vine, like from S-curve to S-curve for the rest of their life, experiencing various domains of life, various personas, they chose to hang on to the familiar. Now, that is a metaphor. Businesses that hold on to their business models, Nokia did this famously. They couldn't let go of that business model that they were so good at because they were brilliant managers. And remember, Peter Drucker said management is doing things right, leadership is doing the right things. They were excellent managers. The same for all of us. We cling to that persona, wondering, oh, what if I don't make it if I let go? I'd rather be a prisoner to this history this record of my past, rather than take a chance on a vision for my future. And in American football, for example, I mentioned at the start of the show, so many players cling to that jersey. They become the jersey instead of letting go and kind of go, look, I have loads of transferable skills. I can apply them elsewhere and I can achieve elsewhere and enjoy another series of decades, series of personas, because life can offer you that. And that's my overarching call at, at the end of the show. And the last one is for each of us who hold on to grudges, which I did for sure. I held on to grudges of not performing as well. This coach didn't pick me. He didn't like me, etc. for a long time. And I often think of it like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And as they say, you get bitten by a snake. It's not the snake bite that kills you. It's not removing the poison. So like the monkey trap, like the coconut trap, got to let go of it in order to create new energy. And it's, it really is. It's so liberating when you let go and you forgive or you decide to go, I don't care what people think. I'm going for this because oftentimes people will hold you back. And it's sometimes for, they think they're doing the right thing for you. They think they're protecting you. They don't want to see you fail. And other times they do, they want to hold you back because it's a reflection of your, of them not changing. And I say, I hope the book helps just for people to let go of the fruit, let go of the familiar and explore the unknown. There's so many great uh, metaphors in the book, right? The butterfly, of course, the Ouroboros, the monkey trap. There's a bunch of them. They're just images. I think that that's very hard to put out of your mind and which are helpful in re-examining what it is that you do. And in a way, I think, although I have plenty of students that go out and start companies and, and start new things in their 20s, in a way, I'm, I'm always more impressed by the people that go off and do these new things when they're you know, a little bit older. And when I see a colleague, say, at the peak of their career in academia, just throw it aside and, and, and do, do a startup. And you might think they have 
a little bit of retirement money. And so therefore it's easier for them. I think it's really actually a lot harder for them because they have to give up the thing that has made them successful. And you've reinvented yourself as an a transformation. I don't want to even call you a transformation expert because I think, you know, like me, you, you'd be wary of that term expert <laughs> might get, get, get you a little too comfortable. Do you have another S curve in your future? Have you started to plant the seed for another S curve now that you're approaching, I think a, a pretty, pretty nice peak in your current incarnation? Yeah. Well, one of the things actually on the, the peak is, um, I have a chapter on recalibrating time, which is to think longer, to think longer about time. I, I often think about music, the radio edits. We live in a world of radio edits where it's get me to the chorus, you know, <laughs> get me to the climax, even shows like this, there's a tendency to do, oh, well, my audience will only tolerate 15 to 20 minutes. That may be true, but what are you? And that's why the why versus try dilemmas always there. Why are you doing it? You're doing it to learn yourself. So you'll go longer, takes more work, takes more effort, takes more editing. But I think longer about my life now. So there's a lot of us have this kind of, and we don't even see it. We just work towards it as 65, I'll retire and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not thinking like that at all. I'm thinking long. So I just, I think of that as this wide open sea of opportunity that has no finish line. And that really helps, Greg. That really helps you not go, I'll do this other thing and then I'll stop. I'll get to there and then I'm almost there. It's like the end of Gladiator where he's touching the wheat. <laughs> so, so that really helps, really helps me. So I have loads of stuff I want to do, man. There's um, my latest projects is I mentioned I took on two courses. So I'm an exec coach. So I work with a couple of executives and I do, because th these various hats also put pressure on me. I help a couple of leaders with thought leadership writing. So basically coach them on that. I am going to work on that new book. I've given myself a year kind of uh, break and then I'll work on part two of the trilogy. And my own business, I started that last March. That was another S-curve that I've been enjoying and really starting to take off now as well. And the trick to your point is I need to go back to your beautiful analogy. I don't want to overstuff the pan. So I have time for my family. I have time for my kids. And I'm not, I, I just not, not getting to those moments of pressure that we get to where I've overdone it. I've overloaded myself where something's going to break. And that's a nice, happy balance that I'm going to try and maintain. I'm going to work hard to maintain that as well. Well, the book's called Undisruptible, but it's really all about kind of continuous disruption. I think I really appreciate you joining me today, Aiden. I uh, hope to see you again soon. Hopefully you'll uh, come through the Bay Area. Maybe we can get you to give some talks to our students out here. I think they would enjoy that. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.